welcome to the War Studies podcast. We bring you world-leading research from the School of Security Studies at King's College London, the largest community of scholars in the world dedicated to the study of all aspects of security, defence and international relations. We aim to explore the complex realm of conflict because the study of war is fundamental to understanding the world we live in and the world we want to live in. midnight, in the dark, under the guns of the Chinese communists, and this guy, amazingly, came down 120 miles of the most treacherous stretches of waterway in the world and made it. In today's episode, we'll be talking to Malcolm Murphy, a visiting professor at the Department of War Studies, about some of the great historical naval figures, their success, and blunders, as well as Malcolm's unconventional journey to professorship. There are a few names in history that go down in the collective memory for the glory, infamy, or tragedy associated with them. PQ-17 is on that list, and it's not hard to see why it should be. This ill-starred convoy began its tortuous journey from Reykjavik in Iceland in late June 1942 with 40 merchant ships carrying essential war supplies to the Soviet port of Archangel on the White Sea. Three ships were soon forced to return to Icelandic ports after either running aground or being damaged by ice. It wasn't a good augury for the entire venture, and much worse was to follow. Of the remaining 37 ships, 17 freighters, four steamers, two tankers, and a rescue ship never completed their journey. Unfortunately for PQ-17, Bletchley Park, the government code and cipher school, GC and CS, set up in the countryside north of London, was experiencing one of its periodic intelligent blackouts. When the ability to decipher enemy signals traffic was temporarily compromised by changes made by the Germans to their Enigma wheel settings. This led to frustrating delays in reading these messages and ensured that vital information covered in them simply could not be given to the Admiralty in a timely fashion. As luck would have it, however, the German equivalent of GC and CS, the Bedienst, was at its most predictive best. It was able to provide the Germans with the exact location on the 1st of July of PQ-17, the one convoy with an estimated value of 700 million US dollars that they wished to attack and dismember. Not only would their U-boats be in attendance, but also the Luftwaffe's dive bomber squadrons from northern Norway would be drafted in to attack the convoy. In addition, the German Navy, the Kriegsmarine, were also set to unleash the battleship Tirpitz, the heavy cruiser Admiral Hipper, two pocket battleships, Lutzo and Admiral Scheer, and 10 destroyers upon PQ-17. It was a formidable task force. Allied reconnaissance aircraft had spotted some of the other German heavy ships steaming northwards from Trondheim. When this news was received, in the Admiralty in London, 
Admiral Sir Dudley Pound, the first sea lord, was placed in an acute dilemma. What steps could be taken to save this convoy from massive destruction? Fourth of July, American Independence Day, was not celebrated in Admiralty House in 1942. It proved to be a somber day that began badly and became foul. A successful torpedo hit on the steamer Christopher Newport critically disabled her. More attacks followed, both by dive bombers and U-boats, which sank two more steamers. Pound became more agitated as the day proceeded, believing that the Tirpitz, all 50,000 metric tons of it, would lead an all-out assault on PQ-17. Pound panicked and decided on his own initiative to withdraw the destroyer escorts and close covering cruiser force from PQ-17 and order the convoy which would now be defenseless to disperse. In telling the merchant ships to scatter, he hoped he was offering the individual ships the best chance they had of surviving such an attack by the German surface fleet. Throughout the following day, Pound's tragic blunder played itself out as a virtually ceaseless series of aerial attacks took place over the now broken and widely dispersed convoy. Ironically, the heavy surface ships that Pound was so fearful of were to play no active part in the destruction of the convoy. They remained in port and only sorted later on the 5th of July for a few hours before returning to port. Apart from the loss of 120 merchant seamen, their ships representing 142,000 tons and cargo of 210 aircraft, 430 Sherman tanks, 3,350 vehicles and 99,316 tons of other war supplies were also lost on this most punishing convoy of the entire war. Welcome back to the War Studies podcast. My name is Aisha Khan and I'll be hosting today's episode where I'm joined by Professor Malcolm Murphy, a visiting professor in the Department of War Studies. In this episode, we'll be taking a closer look at historical naval figures, both the unsung heroes and those who made catastrophic blunders, as well as Malcolm's incredible work as an associate editor of the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography and his personal unconventional journey into academia and professorship. Malcolm's research focuses on contemporary British and European history, particularly that concerning naval masters and figures. He has written widely on the themes of navy and defence and has published over a dozen books. Malcolm, thank you for joining me for the podcast today. The piece you began with in telling the story of Admiral Sir Dudley Pound and the losses they had shows just how dangerous being a seaman on merchant ships during World War II was. Are you able to tell us a little bit more about the vital part such ships played in the war and what the attack on PQ-17 meant for the Royal Navy's war strategy? Absolutely. Merchant ships brought in vital war supplies for each of the combatants in war. If the enemy sank these merchant ships in sufficient quantities, then the results would become catastrophic. Look what happened to the war on trade in the North Atlantic in the First World War. Without employing convoy, Britain was essentially on the roads in 1916-1917. Fortunately, wisdom eventually prevailed and convoy was introduced systematically to preserve trade. 
In addition, the little matter of the United States joining the war in April 1917 helped too in this respect. But the war on trade was seen as vital in the Second World War too. And though convoy was in place and helped preserve both the ships and the safe landing of supplies, the Germans still thought that victory at sea could be won by their U-boats. As an instance of just how dramatic the loss of supplies could be, one needs only look at the situation in Japan from 1943 through 45 to see what an extraordinary effect the US subs were having on the Japanese war. In my eyes, merchants were in many ways the unsung heroes of World War II. Just think of those Arctic convoys from Scotland and Iceland to the Soviet ports of Archangel and Murmansk. As you know, the North Sea is extremely inhospitable and in winter appallingly so. Usually once or twice, maybe even three times a year, 30 meter waves could be encountered. Ships could founder without the presence of U-boats or aircraft, let alone surface ships looking to sea. So for me, the merchant seamen are going about their task, every second of which could be the end. So the merchant seamen definitely play their part. But how did other naval officers react to the orders given that day? And how were the subsequent events received by senior officials and the general public? Captain Jack Groom, the commander of the destroyer escort force that was there for PU-17, could scarcely believe his eyes when he read the order. And he signaled Commodore Dowding, the commanding officer of PU-17, with the words, what part of the bloody war plan is this? Groom considered it was a fundamental mistake and a death sentence for many of the vessels that would be sailing alone from now onwards. His final words to Dowding said it all, and I quote here, sorry to leave you like this, goodbye and good luck. It looks like a bloody business. So the events of the 4th of July 1942 might be called a disaster, but beyond the criticism of events that day, Pound was largely successful. With much experience behind him, how might one explain Pound's actions that day and did it ruin the rest of his career? Surely convoy as a concept has proved itself many times in the war. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a legitimate question. Convoy, of course, proved itself many times. We saw this in 1718, the uh, destruction rates on uh, merchant shipping went way, way, way down, uh, as of course they were, it was a hugely successful concept in World War II too. We uh, had convoys set up across the Atlantic from the earliest days of the war. We didn't make that mistake again. Pound and others like him were reluctant, I think, to embrace the entire concept of convoy. They worried in particular about two things. One, German heavy surface ships sorting against the convoy because they believed that destroyers or destroyer escorts, come on, they're not going to be up against heavy cruisers, let alone battleships. You get turpits 
coming at you. 53,000 cubic metric tons, come on, blow the vessels out of the water. So I understand where Parent was coming from, but it was so sad because he was worried not only about surface ships, but he didn't have any intelligence that actually said that they were within firing distance, as it were, of uh, PQ-17. Secondly, he worried about wolf packs, U-boat wolf packs, where a, a number of U-boats uh, would work together as a group, coordinated to smash whatever convoy it was that they were. So, while I understand it, it was still the wrong decision to make because he didn't have definitive knowledge that the heavy surface ships were at sea and homing in on PQ-17, and of course, they weren't. Now, with regard to Pound's decision, it was a mistake, it was seen as a mistake, he would have recognised it as such too. Although, you know, he would feel, yes, yes, I shouldn't have done that, but under the circumstances, I felt that it was the best thing I could have done. It didn't ruin his career, but I do think it put an asterisk against him. Um, he was not a well man. It's arguable that he should have been in that post uh, still in 1942. He suffered from a degenerative hip condition, uh, which caused him constant pain. He used to fall asleep in meetings. People thought he was clearly infirm. He did suffer in the end from a couple of strokes, one of which left him in paralysis. But he remained at the top as first sea lord until September 1943. So with that said, let's move on to look at your books. In your book, Naval Warfare 1919-1945, An Operational History of the Volatile War at Sea, you consider how navies performed from the Great War to the end of World War II. How difficult was it to source and collate the information you needed? And were there any particular naval strategies that really stood out for you? Yeah, well, this was uh, one of those things I'd been asked many years ago to do this book on naval warfare. And it was clear that this wasn't just the Royal Navy and World War II. This was all theatres, all navies and the entire Second World War. And in fact, the original guy who asked me this was Professor Jeremy Black, and he wanted me to do the First World War and the Second World War. I told him uh, in around about the year 1997 or so, there's no chance, Jeremy, I can do this. It's going to be too big. It'll be massive. So I eliminated the First World War. I thought that uh, enough had been uh, said about that, uh, but that I would look at the interwar period and the Second World War and look at it uh, across all theatres. But what I wanted to do was to introduce an element of simultaneity in it. I wanted to bring action to bear as it took place across the globe. Now, it made it much more difficult to write. And I mean, look, this took me 10 years. I mean, this is the magnum opus for me. 
Now, you asked me uh, what um, particular naval strategies really stood out for me. Well, you'll probably smile ruefully at this when I say evacuations were pretty extraordinary. If you think about, for example, Operation Dynamo, you know, the evacuation of the British Expeditionary Force from Dunkirk, for example. I mean, it's extraordinary to extricate 338,000 men in eight days under fire. What? I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. It wasn't just a British thing. I mean, if you look at Gustav Freiherr von Liebenstein or Konrad Engelhardt or Oskar Kumetz or Sergei Gorshkov, they were all brilliant in taking people off from uh, positions which were untenable. But Ramsey had this extraordinary ability as a logistician to put together a plan that, I mean, still defies belief. Operation Neptune, the naval operation of D-Day, it's mind-blowing. It's absolutely mind-blowing. So the evacuations you described sound phenomenal. And congratulations on writing the book over 10 years. That is excellent work. But that's not your only book. So in your book, The First Sea Lord, you talk about leadership in war and clearly found instances in naval officers whose leadership stood out in both positive and negative ways. Can you tell us something about a few of these individuals? Well, yes, I can. I'm tempted to say, how long do you have? There were a number of First Sea Lords who were superb in but and, and people like Fisher and Beatty and Chatfield and Cunningham and Mountbatten come to mind. All of them did various things for the Navy because it wasn't just a question of looking after the British Navy. They had to look after engagement with their service colleagues, so that is Chief of the Air Staff and Chief of the Imperial General Staff of the Army, working that out in the Chiefs of Staff Committee from 1923 onwards was not always easy. If you had somebody who was really difficult in one of those other roles, for example, Viscount Montgomery, trying to engage him was going to be a real issue. Uh, so you needed somebody of consummate ability who was good not only with the idea of strategy at sea, but also at home. And some people were better at sea than behind a desk, and some were better in peacetime behind a desk than they were at sea. I would say that Pound was better in peacetime than he was in war, but I would say that his immediate successor, Daniel Cunningham, was well, he's perhaps the best of those who were both great at sea and also, also very good uh, behind the table. But Mountbatten, I thought, was a liability at sea. And he became an outstanding good first sea lord when in time of peace, as it were. But for me, the unsung heroes are the the best ones. And I would suggest to you that there's one figure out there, Sir Roderick MacGregor 
who was Bercy Lord from 51 through 55. This man, virtually we met, nobody knows anything about him. But he was fantastic. He was absolutely perfect. Unlike Battenberg, who was known as I concur because he agreed with Churchill on virtually everything, McGregor was a person who fought his own corner and who had ideas and was able to delegate as well. If you ask me for a favourite, there you are. Such figures deserve to be credited and documented, and the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, ODMB, exists as almost magisterial volume that referenced notable figures from British history and currently holds over 60,000 biographies. How did you become an associate editor, and what does the role entail? Well, this started in about 1997. Um, I was chosen because Dr. Nicholas Roger, who I'd known from the, from the fact that we were, uh, that I was a doctoral student uh, at Oxford, and, and Nicholas at that stage was in the Public Record Office, which is now known as the National Archives, of course. It was Nicholas who asked me whether I would be interested in being an associate editor of the ODMB, and I said, yeah, of course. I mean, absolutely. So I was asked to take responsibility for naval, mercantile, and yachting figures drawn from the 20th century. Now, of course, the only thing is that you only go into this book once you're dead, which is fortunate, it seems to me. Uh, but my task was to examine all these prominent individuals who died, who had a connection to the sea. Then read their obituaries, and then I had to make a decision. You know, so how do I classify them? And I know heads of department are asked to classify their staff, <laughs> and they're given, you know, an A to D rating for these things. This is what I was given for these people who had done remarkable things and would, you know, I, I, I felt in no way comparable to, but I would have to make a decision. Does this guy get a C plus or a B minus? Because unless you get a B, there's no way you're even in the shakeup to go into the ODM. Because just think about it. You know, we are probably every year, the max I can publish is four or five people. And in some years, uh, we don't compromise on the political because I constantly think about, well, two years ago I had this guy in and this one here and this year, mm, no, he doesn't have quite what it takes. So one is constantly assessing and comparing one with the other. So I've been in that role now 24 years. And up to now, I have to say that the editors of the ODMB have taken what I've had to say. Let's hope that that continues. At the beginning of the podcast, we explored Admiral Pound, who led a successful career, but then made a critical mistake. On the flip side, you also have naval officers who have fallen from grace, but yet are heroic on a single occasion. Do the latter deserve to be featured in the ODMB over the former? And how close does it come when having to call who's included and who's not? Yes, that's a very good question. Many years ago now, I wrote a book. One can never call these things definitive, of course, because there is no such thing. But I wrote a book which was 
been a kind of standard book on the amethyst crisis. Uh, the Hostage on the Anxers, I titled my book in 1949. And this was a crisis that the Royal Navy involved in. They should never have been up the Anxer in between the PLA on one side of the Anxer and the Chinese communists on the other side. What on earth were we doing? You know, ferrying a ship up to Nanjing or Nanking back in those days and in between the war uh, lines. I mean, this was an accident waiting to happen, and of course it happened. And the problem was that in disabling the amethyst of this small ship that was on the answer in April 1949, uh, then you had an international crisis. In the shelling of the amethyst, the captain uh, of the vessel was injured, mortally injured, died, and therefore a new captain needed to be drafted in. Now, would you promote from within or would you bring somebody in from without? And the decision was made that ultimately a figure, an individual who had been very naughty, let's put it like this, in the past, and who these days, I think, would have been found out of the Navy by the stage. Uh, had gone in for a great deal of drinking and sadly was also known for his desire for women. The, the fact of the matter was that Lieutenant Commander John Simon Kerrans was drafted in. He was on report, so he was under examination, as it were, at uh, Nanking. And Vernon Donaldson, who was annoyed with him, <laughs> who was... Um, the flag officer, second in command in China, said, Kerens, you go to the Amazon. Not only did he find himself and become hugely popular on board ship, but he also decided to make a run for it on the answer at midnight, in the dark, under the guns of the Chinese communists, who by this stage in July were now dominant in and around the Yangtze Basin. This guy. Amazing, came down 120 miles of the most treacherous stretches of waterway in the world and made it. I mean, it resulted in the most extraordinary joy and celebrations. The king, Buckingham Palace, was thrilled, and the Admiralty was placed in an absolutely invidious position. Here was this character they didn't know what to do with who had suddenly become a hero, and a national hero at that. I mean, when they landed ultimately back in the UK, there were demonstrations, there was, you know, Whitehall gatherings and cheering and huge crowds and so forth. Of course, he was promoted, and the king was entirely thrilled. Now, that's quite the story. And we're recording this just before International Women's Day. And of course, with equality in mind, what is the current gender split of individuals featured in the ODMB? And what efforts are being made by the ODMB to address and document history's forgotten heroes and some of their achievements that were written out of history? I fear that the amount in the, the naval uh, element of this is going to be very small. In the overall ODMB, no question, 
that we are very aware of the need to redress the balance. It's vitally important that those who are in a position to push the inclusion of figures do so. Not in, in a way which would be inappropriate, but where those who have been written out of history in the past, well, they're not being written out of history now. The, the times have changed completely. I think the question that you pose, what percentage and so on, you ask that in 50 years, the answer may be considerably different from what it is now. So we're now going to move on to our feature section of the podcast, where we look at the individual behind the research and what compels them to explore their area of expertise. So Malcolm, it seems that in many ways you've sought to carve your own path to achieve as you desire, despite the hurdles you've had to overcome. Are you able to tell us a little bit more about your early life and what led you to the decision of wanting to pursue history? Yes, it's unconventional because I was brought up in a very small village, only about 13 miles away from Oxford, but it might as well have been 13,000 miles away from Oxford. And of course, in those days, gosh, who had cars? My mum and dad certainly didn't have a car, and one very rarely got into a place like Oxford. Schooling was, um, let's say, fairly rudimentary, and in any case, I found that exceptionally aggravating, not because I was a scholar, no. Uh, I loved sport and I was fortunately rather good at it. So I did a ton of sport, far too much of it. I played at Junior Wimbledon, the school's championships on the grass courts at, at Wimbledon. Yes, admittedly the outside court, but notwithstanding that it was Wimbledon and when changed in the in the main things and so forth. But I did that a week before my O levels. And the result was I got one O level at 16. And that was it. Goodbye. That's the end of schooling. I remember the, the deputy head mistress said to me, Malcolm, I told you you were spending far too much time on sport. Life sport balance, life work balance, very important. And, you know, if it's 90-10, bad news, man. And so it's got to be roughly balanced. Otherwise, all kinds of things happen. But, I mean, I've been very fortunate in my life. I mean, I have been able to work hard to get back. I was selling carpets in, in an Oxford departmental store in uh, 1966, and within eight years, I was doing a doctorate of it. So, yeah, it's unconventional. So, as you said, you were selling carpets, but then you led this incredible path, both academic and a career path, in rise to professorship. Might you detail how you came to arrive at where you are today? Well, I think the thing is that. I realized even when I was selling carpets that there was a 
there was another world out there, not least because I used to sell carpets to Oxford colleges. And I would go and see these carpets, these Wiltons and Axminsters laying in these colleges. And look at all these panelled walls with all these books that I've never read in my life. This is really remarkable. Fancy coming here. And I thought, well, yeah, why not? Let's let's work at something. So in eight years, I went from being a carpet salesman to a doctoral student at Oxford. And I know that the domestic verses and the man support and so forth, who I used to sell carpets to, could not believe that I was back, but in a different capacity. And it was a, a source of great joy to both them and me. But when I was at Oxford, there was always this danger of, you know, going to excess. I mean, I was blessed by being pretty good at sport. And in those days, if you got an Oxford blue, which I did, then that was regarded as being more important than a degree. And of course, I got my hockey blue immediately. And, and I was on the verge of the cricket team as well. And my doctoral supervisor, marvellous, marvellous man from New College, said to me, Look, I need to see something from you, which is of a written nature. And so I had to uh, double down and do my work. You worked on Churchill's papers and you were only one of two people in the world at the time to do so. Can you tell us more about the job that enabled you to gain access to the papers that are kept underground at the University of Oxford? This was a, another extraordinary thing, really, because back in the 1970s, Churchill trustees, who had the control of the literary elements of the Churchill estate, had set up Randolph Churchill and his research assistant, uh, Martin Gilbert, to do the, the many-volumed biography of, of Churchill with companion volumes of documents and everything else. But they also commissioned uh, the Earl of Birkenhead to write a single volume, Life of Churchill. And Birkenhead got involved in a car traffic accident. He was also suffering from cancer of the throat as well. Birkenhead, who was an amateur historian who had written very extensively about his father, who was Churchill's uh, greatest friend, Henry Smith. Birkenhead asked a number of the Oxford dons who they would suggest he could use as a research assistant. And um, delightfully, two of these very prominent dons said me, and I got the job. And I uh, worked on it for five years. It was fantastic. 110 filing cabinets down on L floor in the Bodleian, way below Broad Street. Unbelievable. Absolutely extraordinary experience. Really fantastic. So you strike me as a man with much motivation and a very can-do attitude. So what advice would you give students of today who want to pursue a career in the field? I would say never give up. Never give up hope. And don't be persuaded by people who say, no, you can't do that. That's not possible. It's impossible to do. I think if my life is an illustration of that, it's that who would have said with one O level at 16, that in the end, you would be 
you know, uh, a dog costume belongs for that you would get this or you would get that, you would achieve this, you would write 15 books and so on and so forth. Equally, um, even when life seems to be battering you around and you are on the floor, you can still get up. It means hard work, yes. You've got to have discipline, yes. You've got to have talent, yes. You've got to have luck, yes. You need, you need help, all of these things. But it's not beyond you. If you really want something, go for it. You should live for your, your job, for your life, have them in balance. Do not live for the weekends. I said this actually to my students many, many times now, wherever I taught in Australia, in Canada, in Singapore and Southeast Asia, in Europe, uh, in Italy and in the UK. I've said, don't live for the weekends. If you're doing something that you don't like, that's five days a week. Come on. Your life has got to have something more than that. Some really phenomenal achievements and some really great advice. And also, what's next for you now? I had a wonderful autumn this year uh, teaching at the University of Trento in Italy. And uh, I know they want me back, uh, which, is, <laughs> which is very lovely. But, I mean, I, I want to continue to do my teaching. I love it enormously. I'm doing a book on leadership in the 60s and 70s. Uh, so, yeah, more writing, more teaching, and, and after this, I'm going for a run. And with that, I want to just thank you for joining the podcast today, for giving us the insight into all the historical naval figures that you've mentioned, as well as your life. It's a great pleasure, Aisha, and thank you very much for asking me. You have been listening to the War Studies Podcast, produced and edited by Lizzie Ellen, Aisha Khan, and Danny McDivitt from the School of Security Studies at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to receive regular updates, please visit our website, which you'll find in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on your preferred podcast provider. It really helps us reach more listeners. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on the War Studies Podcast.